Well, it's not quite as ominous as our last series bumper video, right? It's a little more upbeat. Some of you guys wanted to dance, I could tell. Others of you were thinking back to Duck Hunter when you were a kid, right? And the, that old Nintendo box and, and thinking about that. But uh, we are starting a new series this morning, and it's called New Life. And, uh, you know, hopefully you guys got the connotation. Some of you who, who aren't really video game people, you get new lives in video games and things like that. You get to kind of start over again. That's kind of the whole concept there. And that was, hopefully caught the video game. I know really old video game, which is, you know, understandable. But anyways, uh, so that's, so that's, um, that's uh, so we're starting this new series. We're going through 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up. That's where we're going to be. Um, we're going to go right through, so we'll be in 2 Corinthians 1 mostly this morning, and uh, encourage you to open up your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible and you have a smartphone or a smart device of some kind, I encourage you to download uh, Uversion or something like that. It's a free Bible app, and you can do that as well. Um, before we uh, dig in this morning, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that we can look to it, that we can study it, that we can learn from it. And uh, Lord, as as we look to it this morning, and, and specifically at the church in Corinth and the letter that Paul wrote, uh, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our minds, that you would help us to understand well uh, what you have for us this morning, but also enable our hearts to, to embrace that message uh, and apply it to our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently in, in Washington, D.C., there was an event that took place, and it's called the Wilberforce Weekend. Uh, the Colson Center puts it on every year, and uh, it's, it's uh, the Colson, Chuck Colson, and uh, Prison Fellowship, that's kind of part of that, uh, Chuck's legacy and things like that, that ministry. So the Colson Center puts this, this event on, and it's about engaging the culture from a Christian uh, worldview, and they each year give out a, um, a Wilberforce Award, a, w- a William Wilberforce Award. This year, uh, it went to Mama, Mama Maggie. And uh, Mama Maggie is an interesting story. She, is, um, uh, she was a woman that, that would, was from Egypt, and she would travel to Europe, and, and she would you know, go to these nice stores and, and spend lots of money and hobnob with kind of the upper echelons of, of, of society. And, and this, was, this was kind of her life. It was, it was what she did. She was well-to-do and, and could afford to do a lot of those things. And after a while, in her mid-30s, she and a group of friends from church decided to visit one of Cairo's garbage slums. And as a matter of fact, we got a picture of her in front of one of these slums, and some 60,000 people live there. Most of them are Christians who gather garbage in the most appalling conditions uh, for just a few coins a day to survive. And as she did this, as she came into contact and, and began to spend time with these children and these parents of these children. And, and this transformed her life. It completely changed how she approached life. As she spoke to parents and hugged children in the garbage dump, she was completely changed. Ellen Vaughn wrote uh, in a biography about Maggie Mama. She said this, Maggie fell in love with the privilege of being part of their lives. She was a woman of privilege, but after she spent time in this place and, and began to spend time with these kids and these parents and who were, who were just trying to sift through garbage in order to make, make it by. Her life was transformed. She began to visit the slums every day. She founded a ministry called Stephen's Children, named for the, the first Christian martyr. Three decades later, Stephen's Children now helps 33,000 children through home visits, camps, vocational training, schools, 
medical care. Isn't that cool? There is a woman who takes seriously the message of Jesus Christ, takes seriously what it is to, to be a follower of Jesus in the world. And she has done this amazing thing over this time, moving from somebody who was a person of privilege to finding privilege and spending time with those who were, the lo- who were lost and in need and most oppressed in society. You know, as I thought about that, it reminded me of the story of Paul in some ways. It's not obviously perfectly parallel, but Paul, once Saul, was a persecutor of Christians, right? He thought he was doing the things he was supposed to do. He thought he was, he was serving God, and he was a person of privilege in a different sense. Maybe not wealthy, but, but he was wealthy in the sense that he had status in society. He was a Jew of Jews, right? He, he knew the law. He had studied it. He had studied under the, the, the best teachers of the law and was a person of, of privilege. And then he saw these, these people, these, these people of the way that, that were following Jesus. And, and, and in his mind, they were a sect of people that were misleading people that were misleading the Jews, that were leading people down a wrong path. They were, they were the heretics of the day from Paul's perspective, or from Saul's perspective. And it wasn't until he came face to face with Jesus that his life was transformed. And he went from being a person of privilege, persecuting the Christians, persecuting the people who followed Jesus, even putting them to death, all for the sake of God in his mind, to a person that was being beaten, that was being imprisoned, that was being tortured for the sake and because of the calling of Jesus Christ in his life. That's who Paul was. He went from Saul to Paul, and he now gave us a significant portion of the New Testament. But just as God transformed Mama Maggie through the eyes of those children and the faces of those mothers, God transformed Saul to Paul through the face of Jesus Christ. As he started to plant churches and, 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 and began to speak to the Jews about Jesus Christ and then eventually found that there was little fruit in, in presenting Jesus to the Jews and said, I'm always going to speak to the Jews, but now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. That's who God's called me to. And he began to minister and began to plant churches. He found that the life of following Jesus Christ was not one of privilege. It wasn't, one, it wasn't a life of ease. It wasn't a life that was filled with, with nice things and, and, and nice restaurants and, and, and hobnobbing with the upper echelons of society. That's not the life of following Jesus Christ. He found the exact opposite. He found that it was a life of torture. It was a life of being beaten, of being thrown in prison, all because he followed Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, what we find when we begin to think about it, not just in the words of Paul as he opens this, this epistle to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, but we find this in the words of Jesus when he said, remember when they hate you, they hated me first, right? When he said things like that, his teachings were not, this is a life of ease. He, he didn't live a life of extravagance. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite when, when one, one person came to, and said, what must I do to follow you? And he said, one of the things he says is you got to give up everything and you got to remember that I don't even have a place to, wear, to put my head at night. And it discouraged him from following Jesus. What we find is this, that to follow Jesus is to share in his suffering. To follow Jesus is to share in his sufferings. Now, this may not be what you want to hear, right? 
I mean, it must have been shocking to the people of Corinth. I mean, Corinth was, was this, this city that was, that was very metropolitan, that people were traveling through all the time. It was, it was a trade route. It was a, it's, it's located on the edge of a, of a land bridge between two major sections of, of, of land where, where traders had to come through. It was a place of upward mobility. It was a pa- place of diversity. It was, it was a place where, where people could go and they could get jobs and they could make money and they could, they, could, they could move up economically. And for Paul to come and to begin to share with them that following Jesus about suffering would be a complete shock to their system. They didn't want to hear that. That's not why they came to Corinth. They came to Corinth, many of them were, were, were freed slaves and they came to Corinth because they could make a better life for themselves. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like what we might think of the United States. People come here to make a better lives for themselves. They, they come here because they can economically move up in the world. They come here because there's opportunity. The same was true of Corinth. It was a diverse place, and, and, and it was a place where, where people could, could invest and do business and all of those kinds of things, and so that's why they came there. And they wanted often to be wealthy. They wanted to be, be, have a higher status in society. And so that's what they were in pursuit of. And here comes Paul and he says, he says, I know you all want to hear that, but it's not like that. You know, as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think, for those who are a little bit older, you guys might, might remember that show with Robin Leach, right? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You guys remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that show, yeah? Yeah, and then, of course, later there was, it, it went from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and believe it or not, I am old enough to remember that show, but barely. And, uh, <laughs> right? But it was that show, and then later it was MTV Cribs. Anybody remember MTV Cribs, right? Fewer of you, but yeah, some of you, MTV Cribs, right? And, and of course, the whole idea was, was, wow, look how the rich and the famous live, and look at the cars they drive, and, and look at the houses they live in, the mansions they have, and, and look at the amazing things, and look, they have a bowling alley in their basement, and all this kind of stuff, right? Then, of course, then we, you know, later, I, I was trying to figure out what the modern version of that is. The best I could come up with was, like, something like Real Housewives. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that's quite right. <laughs> it's not quite right, but, but maybe some of the Real Housewives show I hear, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've watched all of five minutes of one episode of one of the iterations of the Real Housewives show. So, so I'm not exactly sure on that one. Right? But we often think, and it was this whole idea, you watch this show, and the whole idea of the show is, is, wow, if you could be rich and famous, look at the life that you could have, right? When people went to Corinth, that's what they were looking for. That's what they wanted. They wanted the lifestyle of the rich and famous. They wanted the lifestyle of the well-to-do. They wanted the Ma- Mama Maggie lifestyle before she came face-to-face with those children in that garbage dump. They wanted to... To, to, to move up, to make money, to have wealth. And then here comes Paul, and he says something completely crazy. As a matter of fact, this is not in chapter 1. It's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 11. But, but in this same epistle, right, he, he says this. He says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us. Think about that message for a moment. 
Here comes Paul. He's going to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He's going to tell you about eternal life. And then he comes to this point in his, mess, in, his, in his epistle, and he says, for we are all, we who are alive, are always being given over to death. In other words, this message of, of prosperity gospel, that, that's, a, that's a false message, but that's what people wanted to hear, right? This idea, and then we often hear this, and, and, and pastors and preachers will come along and they will, will give a message of, hey, if you just believe in Jesus, then you'll have wealth, then you'll have all this stuff. And there is human flourishing when you believe in Jesus, but it's not found in stuff. It's not found in cars. It's not found in mansions. It's not found in any of those things. As a matter of fact, recently, I, I, I don't even know where I heard about it, um, but I came across an Instagram feed, um, Preachers and Sneakers. Anybody familiar with this? Yeah, Johnny does. <laughs> yeah. Right, Preachers and Sneakers. And I was kind of, I was kind of, it, it's kind of one of those things where you, you begin to look at the Instagram feed, and, and, and at first I thought it was like a Babylon Bee thing, like it was some kind of sarcastic joke or something, because it kept taking these pictures of, of preachers who, um, who were wearing sneakers, and they were worth like, you know, $1,000 for these, this pair of sneakers. I wasn't even aware that you could pay $1,000 for sneakers, although my, the shoes I have on right now, I think I paid, uh, you know, like $2,000, but that's if you count the travel costs uh, down to Costa Rica for a mission trip and in addition to $35 that I spent on them while I was there. But, right, but so, so I don't know if that get, will get me on preachers and sneakers or not. <laughs> probably, probably not. But I thought it was a joke. I, I thought, how can these, but it's true, apparently. These, and as a matter of fact, I even looked up some of the sneakers because, because I, was, I was like, this can't possibly be right. And, and they, they have these preachers and sneakers and they're wearing sneakers that cost anywhere from like, $500 all the way up to the one guy, I think it was like he was wearing Gucci ankle boots or something like that, and they were over $2,000 or some crazy thing. Like, I'd be scared to take them out of my house. You know, I mean, what if they got dirt on the bottom of the sole, you know? And apparently this is a real thing, and, and, and I don't, I'm not standing here to judge all the, the hearts of, of those preachers. That's not my job. But I do begin to wonder about the message that that might communicate. And the idea that what is being communicated is, 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 look, if you follow Jesus, then maybe you can be like me, the pastor who wears $2,000 ankle boots. And that is a false gospel. That is not what Jesus communicated, and it's not what Paul communicated, and it's not what Paul told Corinth, and they were the people who were wanting to have this status and live in this way. But what we find with Paul is that he communicates a different Message. As a matter of fact, if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm not going to put this on the screen right now, but we just, at, starting in verse 3, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our what? Troubles. He comforts us in our troubles. In other words, we will have troubles. There will be affliction in our life, affliction is the word that is used there. And it's used a few times. And there's some other words used in that text that, that for words like troubles and other kinds of words that are synonyms to this, this word afflictions. In other words, when you begin to follow Jesus Christ, there will be troubles. I don't want to preach a false gospel to you. 
I don't think I can tell you, honestly, based on my own experience, based on what the word of God says, based on anything I know about Jesus and God, that if you follow Jesus, your life will be a life of ease and luxury and health and wealth. I can't tell you that. Here's what I can tell you. That if you truly follow Jesus Christ, people will hate you. If you truly follow Jesus Christ, you will find trouble. If you truly follow Jesus Christ, there will be affliction. That, I can tell you. But that's not the message that most people want to hear. And I hate to say it, but the news gets worse. As if you weren't already so excited about following Jesus, the news gets worse. As a matter of fact, well, there's this, sign, this saying, right? And, it's, and people say it all the time and, and, and they go and they say, God will not give you more than you can handle, right? You've heard this, as a matter of fact, it's probably on a million memes on, on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever social media you may or may not use. And, and, and maybe you've said it to somebody. Maybe you've, in, in an attempt to be encouraging to someone who's, who's going through a hard time, you said, God will not give you more than you can handle. And, and it's, your heart is right, I understand, right? You want to encourage somebody, say, hey, listen, 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 God, God believes in your ability to endure whatever this suffering is, whatever this affliction is. God will not give you more than you can handle. Can I just tell you something? That is an absolute lie. Stop saying it if you say it. A lot of Christians say it. And I, and I understand it, right? But what's, what are the implications behind this saying? When we say this to somebody, what we're saying to them is we're saying, is we're saying that you, in and of yourself, you have the strength to endure this. Can I just tell you something? There are many things that you might experience in this world that you do not have the strength to endure. I just, I just want to let that sink in for a second here. God will absolutely, 100%, give you more than you can handle. God gave Paul more than he can handle. And Paul admitted it. And it is for good reason that God gives it to him. If we look in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8, it says this. We do not want you to be uninformed. I echo that sentiment for you this morning. I do not want you to be uninformed. Brothers and sisters, about the troubles, there's that word, we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death did you hear that far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death but but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will give you more than you can handle, but he will never give you more than he can handle. That's an important distinction. And we need to understand that in our lives. Whatever we face, whatever difficulties are in front of us, whatever, whatever suffering we experience, whatever, whatever hardships in this life that we have to face, can it be more than we can handle? Absolutely. But it's never more than God can handle. It's never more than God can handle. God is not a self-help kind of God. 
See, I think sometimes one of the idols that we worship in this world is, is self-help ideas, right? We have this, this idea, well, I just got to read, I got to think positive thoughts or whatever. You know, I got I to gotta go through these exercises, these mind exercises so that I can be the best me that I can be. Can I just tell you something? Without Jesus, you'll never be the best you you can be. Because you need Jesus Christ in your life if you are going to be the best you that you can be. God is not a self-help kind of God. He did not come and take on human flesh and go to the cross and spill his blood and then conquer sin and death so you could have confidence in you. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come and say, believe in yourself. What did he say? Believe in me. Didn't he? See, Jesus had a different kind of message. He didn't come to, so that you could have a positive self-image. He didn't come so that you could have confidence in yourself. That's not why Jesus came. As a matter of fact, if your confidence is in yourself, you will fail. And you'll probably fail anyways. But God is the God of redemption. God is the God that overcomes our failures. Because it's, it is often more than we can handle, but it's never more than God can handle. Jesus didn't walk on water. He didn't heal the sick. He didn't make the blind to see. He didn't restore the leper, raise the dead back to life so you could believe in yourself. He did those things so you would believe in him. Amen? Look what Paul says. He says this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to to endure so that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. But then we begin to think, well, what, what, what's with God? I mean, is God some maniacal maniac intent of, of watching us suffer? Is that who God is? Is God this God that sits up there and kind of pokes at us and, you know, like the little kid with, with, with a, a pile of ants? And I mean, is that, is that the God that we serve? Absolutely no. Absolutely 100% that is not the kind of God we serve. God is not some maniacal maniac bent on making those who believe in him suffer. But he does show us our weakness by giving us more than we can handle so that we might rely on God. So that we might rely on God. And I'll again read the last part of that passage we already read. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't really know what you're going through right now for some of you. Some of you, I guess I do know. Some of you, I don't. I have no idea. You could be facing the most difficult challenges of your lifetime at this moment in your life. Physical challenges, financial challenges, relationship challenges with with parents, with kids, with brothers, with sisters, with work, with bosses, with employees. You could be facing all kinds of different challenges. Maybe you're facing foreclosure. Maybe you're you're facing uh, a a child who has decided they want nothing to do with you. Or or maybe you're facing a a parent who has been abusive and and that relationship has has been irreparably harmed or so you think. And it might be if it was based on your ability to provide reconciliation, but when God's involved, it's a whole different story. I don't know what you're all facing right now, but I know this. 
The right answer to suffering isn't to fight. The right answer to suffering isn't to do what the Gnostics and the Buddhists and others have done in the centuries and pretend it's not real. The right answer isn't to accept the teachings of those who say your suffering is because of your lack of faith. The right answer isn't to tough it out, right? That's kind of the American way, right? We tough it out. I I can endure. I'll make it. The right answer is to bring it to the cross and put your hope in Jesus who suffered for your sake and for mine. And who rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Amen? Verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, right? He's talking about his own suffering and what he's gone through. And he says, he says, he has delivered us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Our hope is in Christ and his suffering. Our hope is in what he did on the cross. The reality is this. When we are in the middle of the suffering, we can lose sight of the hope we have in Christ, can't we? Have you been there? I've been there. I've been there. Whether it's facing my own demons or whether it's, whether it's the difficulty of, of, of having a child that's been hurt or sick or, or whatever the case might be or, or whatever the suffering has been, whether it's relationship issues and whether it's divorce, whether it's, it's all those other things, no matter what it is, you can sit there and you can be so overwhelmed by the difficulty that you're facing that you lose sight of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Because the light at the other end of the tunnel is too small. And no, it's not a train. It's Jesus Christ. It's the light that's at the other side of the tunnel. It's not coming at you. But it, when, when you're far enough away, when you feel overcome by the darkness, it's hard to focus on the light because this light is but a small dot. And we lose sight of the hope that we have. We lose sight of Jesus and the Savior that he is. We lose sight of what he's done for us. We lose sight of his ability to strengthen us in our weakness. But we need to start by relying on him, by bringing it to the cross. So whatever you're struggling with this morning, bring it to the cross. And quite frankly, that's why we need each other. That's why you need the people next to you and behind you and in front of you. That's why you need your brothers and your sisters in Christ, your, your, your spouse who, all, who, who will come to you and say, and say I know we're, we're overcome right now. I know that we can hardly see anywhere right now, but there is hope in Jesus Christ because he promises us, a, promises us a new heaven and a new earth. He promises us a time where there will be no more death, no more dying, where all of that stuff will be taken care of. That lies ahead still for us who believe in Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is hope. And quite frankly, that's why you need to come to church because you need to be reminded, yeah? You need to be reminded there is hope in Jesus Christ. Whatever's happening Monday through Saturday, and maybe even on Sundays too, right? Come to church and hear the good news of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the hope for eternity. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on, goes, we go up to verse 5. I know we've kind of jumped around. We've kind of gone down towards the end of our passage today. We're going to go back up to verse 5 in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. And it says this, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, right? 
listen to this, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. This is what he's telling the, the church in Corinth, right? Whatever, whatever Paul and his companions are, are experiencing, it is for their comfort. If we are comforted, it, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. As you go through this passage, the word comfort is in there nine times. Nine times. Okay, when something's repeated two or three times, it's important. When it's repeated nine times, you better be paying attention. Nine times in this passage, it talks about comfort. The meaning of suffering is the comfort of the afflicted. The meaning of suffering is the comfort of the afflicted. Here's the thing that I think we need to realize and to recognize is this, that our suffering is not without meaning. It has purpose. And sometimes it might be the only purpose for our suffering is so that someday in some situation we will be able to go to another person who is going through that same situation and put our hand on their shoulder and pray for them and say, I've been there. And because of Jesus Christ, I've survived. And there is hope. That might be the only reason for your suffering and that is sufficient. That is sufficient. Suffering is not meaningless. Can you imagine for a moment a world in which there is no God, but there is suffering? I mean, what is that kind of world? Talk about a world that brings you to despair to the point of questioning why life is worth living. That's that world. But if there is a God, if there is a Jesus Christ, if there is a purpose and a meaning behind your suffering, and we find that in even the smallest thing of being able to honor God by comforting another person, all of a sudden our meaning our suffering has meaning and purpose amen so here's what i can't sell you and i won't sell you i will never tell you and if i do you should kick me out of the pulpit i will never tell you that if you follow jesus your life will be without suffering I will never tell you your life will be out without affliction. I will never tell you that you won't experience hardship and turmoil and pain and sorrow in your life. I will never tell you those things because the reality is that Jesus himself experienced all those things. And if Jesus himself experienced those things, far be it from me to think that I might escape them. But here's what I'll also tell you. That there is no other answer for a life without suffering whatever whenever you hear that whenever somebody comes along and says hey if you follow this religion or this worldview or this thing if you just go this way you will escape suffering and hardship in your life they are lying to you or they are deceived themselves at best that doesn't exist we live in a world that has fallen and has been tarnished by sin And it has tarnished every aspect of the world we live in. And we don't escape suffering. The question is this. Is there a worldview, a truth that comes along and says you might experience suffering, but you can also experience comfort and even your suffering has meaning and purpose. Does that worldview exist? Does that savior exist? Yes, 
His name was Jesus Christ. And he gave meaning to your suffering, to the affliction that you face. No suffering is without meaning. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we don't understand it. It may not show up for years, maybe decades after the suffering we experience, but God always redeems it. Always 100% of the time. Redeems every suffering experience a person has. It is redeemed ultimately in the end. And I can't tell you how in every case. God didn't give me omniscience. I don't have that. But he does. And he has the power to redeem. The meaning of suffering is the comfort of the afflicted. It is not meaningless or or, or purposeless. Victor E. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor and as such was intimately familiar with suffering. And he said this, he said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. There is meaning in suffering. And think about it this way. If there is no meaning in suffering, then Jesus was the worst kind of savior. He was the worst example for us to follow. I mean, think about this. He wasn't exactly living a plush lifestyle. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He wasn't wealthy. He was a carpenter. He was a traveling teacher. He he went from place to place not knowing where he would sleep. And when the time came, he was beaten within an inch of his life, literally receiving the 40 lashes, being made fun of. And then he was put on a cross and his blood was shed. His blood spilled. He died a torturous death, a death that the Romans designed to be the worst kind of death possible. If he was a savior that was supposed to make sure that nobody ever suffered, then he was the worst kind of example. But that was never his goal. His goal was never to say there will not be suffering. His goal was to redeem suffering and give it meaning and purpose. And if that's the kind of savior we seek, then Jesus is the best example. He is the one that said there is suffering, but there is meaning and purpose. And not only that, but God will comfort you. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is called the what? Comforter. And we are given the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Fernando is a a Christian leader from Sri Lanka. And uh, he ministers to the urban poor. And and he was talking about the church in the West. and And he writes this. He says, the church in each culture has its own special challenges. Theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious Theological blind spots in the Western church is a a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering. But there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, Convenience and a painless life have become necessities that people view as, a base, as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth for God intends us to grow through our trials. 
It might not be the most uplifting sermon you've ever heard in your life, but I hope it's a beneficial sermon. I hope it's something that as you begin to think about the life we live in, because we honestly do, uh, most of us, if not all of us, live a very luxurious lifestyle compared to many around the world. But we don't escape the suffering either. There is no level of income. There is no status in society that escapes suffering and hardship and affliction. If you follow Jesus, you will experience those things. But it will have meaning and we will be able to comfort one another and to be comforted by the Holy Spirit because that is what God does for us. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He didn't say you will escape suffering. He said when you suffer, it will have meaning and I will comfort you. The Holy Spirit will come and comfort you. That's good news, isn't it? Whenever you hear somebody saying, hey, there is, there is a way to avoid all suffering in life and in this world, you should automatically and right away discount what they have to say next. But if they say that Jesus was the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about, and if they say that he will help you to endure, that it is not your own strength, the strength of God presented in you, then you should listen to that message. Amen? Jesus Christ went to the cross. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that we might be, be made pure in God's sight, that we would stand before God one day if we have put our faith and trust in him and we would be declared righteous. And in that moment, all the suffering that we have experienced will be redeemed. In that moment, everything that we've had to endure will make sense. And we will stand before God righteous and holy. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will live lives eternally with him. That's where our hope is. It's in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you were the suffering servant of Isaiah. I thank you that you took on human flesh. I thank you that you shed your blood. I thank you that you went to the cross. I thank you that you endured all of those things. And that you conquered sin and death, both in the cross and in the resurrection. And Lord, that you are our hope that we look forward to for eternity. Thank you for being that kind of Savior. You know, if you're sitting here this morning everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed if you're sitting here this morning and you're just thinking yeah I never really thought about it that way I've been trying to run from suffering and I've been trying to run from all these things and I've been looking for the wrong message I've been looking for the wrong answer to the wrong question and you're sitting here this morning and you, you've come in here maybe you're struggling with a variety of things or one single thing and you recognize that you need Jesus Christ that you need to put your faith and trust in him. I want to give you that opportunity this morning before you leave to do that very thing. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if nobody's looking around, I just want to pray for you. And so I'm going to ask you, if, if that's you this morning, would you just put your hand up so I can see it? See those hands. Go ahead and put them down. Dear God, I thank you so much for those that have put their faith and trust. And I invite all of you to just pray with me as, as we go before God. God, it is not that we want you to take away our suffering, although sometimes we pray for that. But only if it's your will. But Lord, redeem 
the affliction and the suffering in our lives. Give it meaning. And give us comfort. When you give us more than we can handle, help us to turn to you, the God of comfort. And recognize that there's nothing that happens that you do not have sovereignty over. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.